Hello, and welcome to Slash, a publishing podcast. I'm your host, Eric Harden, and on this week's episode, I'll be chatting all about working in a publisher's production department. The guest this week is one of the kindest people I've talked to thus far. I had such a wonderful time chatting with this person. I had also never met her, as was the case last week, and I'm so thrilled that I did because I've become just such a fan of hers. She's so kind. She's so knowledgeable. She's so giving with her time and her expertise. And I'm so grateful that she was willing to come onto this small little podcast to grace us with her knowledge. Her name is Nemeche Waliaya. She is a production director at Hachette. And I am so grateful that she was willing to come on this podcast. We had a really wonderful conversation that I'm thrilled for you all to hear. Before we jump into the interview, though, I did want to say quickly that there is some issues with some of the audio in this episode. I think this is just a me issue. I think I, you know, I'm not an expert in podcast production, so I apologize. There's definitely a good amount of background noise happening. There's some, uh, Nemeche was wearing a bracelet, I believe, during the recording of this podcast that gets, there's some noises from that. So just, I'm aware of the sounds. I apologize if they're at all distracting, but I am not an expert, so I apologize. That said, this is a phenomenal episode. I think you're going to really enjoy hearing from Nemeche, so I hope I hope that it's not too distracting and it doesn't take away from Nemeche's wonderful expertise. And so, without further ado, now that I've said that, please enjoy this interview with Nemeche Waliaya. Thank you so much, Nemeche, for taking the time to chat with me about working in production. Anytime. Happy to do it. Okay, let's get right into the questions. I don't want to take up too much of your time. So first question, how did you get to this point in your career? Basically, give us a full rundown of your resume. So, um, okay, I base, I can remember how long I've been doing this because when I started working, my daughter was seven months old and she's 25 now. I've been doing this for 25 years, well, a little under 25 years. I started at HarperCollins in the design department. Interestingly enough, I graduated from Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland, which is a historically Black university. And I was studying radio production. Who does that anymore? (laughs) But that's what I was doing. And then I realized at my internship in college, I loved it. But when I interned in New York, I hated it. And I just realized this wasn't going to be for me. So good, bad things about internships. You can either learn that this is something you really are passionate about, or you can learn that, oh, this ain't for me. So I learned, unfortunately, I was going to start my senior year in college. And I realized that what I was about to get a degree in, I didn't really think I was going to flourish in. I was lucky enough to get an internship at a magazine in Baltimore called Baltimore Magazine. And they just took me in because I don't know why I'm just thankful to this day. I learned Quark, which was a design program back in the day. And because I learned that, interestingly enough, not in school. I was able to get a design position at Harper back in 1997 from that. And then when I got into book publishing, I realized that one, interior book publishing is not usually for color, which in my mind I thought was. I was thinking I was going to be doing jackets and covers. And then I sat next to the production group and they were having fun. When I say they were having fun, I just felt like they were in it. They were a cog in the wheel. And I wanted to learn more about all parts of book production and book manufacturing and just publishing in general. And I thought that would be the department to be in. So that's how I ended up. Once a position was open, I, I went into production. And then I, I started in reprints and I did work my way from reprints. And then I went to first prints and the difference I think your audience probably knows uh, the reprints and first prints, but, but just in case they don't, a reprint title is a title that has already been produced. And let's say we printed 5,000 and now that 5,000, one customer wants it and we don't have any more in stock. 
So we reprint the book. We basically take existing files that already are at the printer and we reprint a cover to make sure it's all cohesive and you have a book. And that's what I was doing for about two years, maybe two and a half years. I loved it. I remember when my first book delivered, you open up the box and you just smell in the books. <laughs> and I was just like, I did this. And I loved it because it was a reprint and it wasn't my own work. And when I say my own work, meaning I didn't officially produce it. I was not the first printing person on that title. First printing, meaning the time the book first comes out for the first time. But I reprinted it. So I was part of its lifeline. And I felt really cool about that. And realized I was really lucky to be in production because I was so excited about that. And I still get excited about that, which is really a blessing for me. Then I moved into first prints. And first prints entails one color as well as four color, but I was always on the adult side. And adult in our book publishing world does not mean X-rated. <laughs> it means that I was publishing books more for the adult reader and not the children's reader. So most of my career has been in adult publishing. And up until I got here at Hachette, I was able to start working on children's books too, which is, I think, very fortunate for me because it doesn't happen a lot. And I'm actually doing this interview from the Lightroom because that's where I'm at in the office today. But it's just where I like to be. It's my happy place. <laughs> and that's what I'm doing today. I mean, I've, I've dabbled in a couple of different departments. I started in design. I went to production. I was in Man Ed for about five years. And then I'm back in production. And I think this is where I want to be. Yeah. Thank you so much for that retrospective on your career. I have to say... I have various, I mean, I'm much, much newer to my career than obviously you are, but I manage our reprints at Macmillan at MCPG. So every time the first book that I ever worked on in reprints, we made just one correction to one page in this graphic novel. But every time that book reprints, I'm like, I helped that book That's exist. Because right. my did. book. <laughs> <laughs> you are part of that lifeline now. It's great. <laughs> yeah, it's the best feeling. See, like minds, I, I really think, and there's not too many, and maybe there are, and I'm just not thinking of it, but there's not too many industries, or I, I just find us to be such lucky individuals. And when I get stressed out, and we all do, right, especially in production right now with all the supply chain issues, but I'm still so thankful that at the end of the day, it's a book I'm making and usually really proud of that book. And, you know, sometimes we don't get to make books that we're always proud of, but I would say 85% of the time, I'm like, I did that. Even though I'm one person in a tribe of people <laughs> who contributed to it, but it just feels good that I was one of those people. So I really enjoy my job. I'm lucky. I completely agree. Okay, moving to the next question. What are some favorite projects or titles that you've worked on so far in your career? Interestingly enough, even though I've been doing adult trade titles most of my career, I when I started doing picture books in 2020, Interestingly enough, I have to list one of those picture books as one of my favorites. Maybe two. Maybe two. Music is a Rainbow by Brian Collier. And the art was just amazing. We had original art that we came into the light while we went to the color separator to take pictures of them, digitize the artwork. But it started with original artwork and just doing the color reviews for those images. Oh, my God. It was like going to a museum. It was just that beautiful. And then... Another one that I did, it's funny, it's the picture books in 2020 that I, I'm really, it's interesting. So, and then Agents for Harlem. I'm from Harlem. This book was amazing to work on. I just looked at my neighborhood when I was doing it from a, from a children's point of view and from an illustrator's point of view, which was really, really cool. I also get to work on cookbooks 
And I got to work on Marcus Samuelson's The Rise, also in 2020. It's interesting for me how 2020 titles are striking a chord. And I realized that it's because it was so different in how they were produced, right? I was working from home. And I was really nervous about the quality of certain things. And for it to come out as beautifully as they did, I just keep those in my mind. And then there are, I, I wish I remembered the title of this book. It was about a mother whose daughter had Down syndrome and she didn't realize her daughter had Down syndrome until she gave birth. And then she wrote this book as an homage to her daughter, which is beautiful. And that's something heartfelt where you, you're really putting the words are already amazing. The images are already amazing. And then the design comes together and you work with this group of people. And it just feels like we created this amazing book for her daughter that went out to the public. That really touched me. And then we have done a lot of um, books where I don't know if proud, proud is the word I would use because we finished them. <laughs> right? It's like, oh God, it's done. <laughs> I'm not going to name those titles. But there are a lot of those that make me proud, too, because you realize your resilience in those titles. You realize how amazing your coworkers are. I mean, my God, I always say when you're working with a good team, when you look to the right and to all of you, you guys are all running full speed, but they're right there with you. Such a great feeling. There's nothing in the world like a, a good team, a great team. And we do that. We realize who we are often when we work on some of the worst books. I think you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> no, I 100% do. Like I said before, I've only been in this career a couple of years, but some of the projects I've worked on just in this amount of time have been so challenging and have taught me so much about myself, both as a person and a professional, like completely agree. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for sharing those titles. And I do think it's so interesting. And this is something I did kind of want to ask you. It's not one of the official questions, but and maybe you'll talk about it as we get into further questions, because I am going to talk about the standard work that you do for each book. But I am fascinated to know how the shift in COVID has affected you specifically, because, I mean, it's affected every department, obviously, in certain ways. But I think especially production has been so radically shifted in the work that you guys are able to do working from home. And I mean, we're starting to go back into the office, a lot of the publishing companies. So maybe that's shifted again. But I am very interested to know how that shift has been for you specifically. I was one of those people. OK, because I live in Harlem which is in Manhattan, Uptown Manhattan, and I work in Midtown Manhattan. As soon as the doors opened at Hachette in August 2020, I was here. <laughs> I didn't, so maybe I'm not the right person to ask because I was here. I remember definitely from March to July, for me, especially working with color, having to get up extremely early because the way my apartment works, the light only works in the morning. The sunlight really comes in in the morning, but 10 o'clock is gone. It's not optimal enough for you to color correct. No one wants to have a color review that early. So what I would end up doing is waking up extremely early to write my notes out so I'm prepared for the review. And I think most people in a color review, and a color review is when folks come together who are working on the book. It's the production manager. It's the designer. Sometimes it's the editor when you're in the children's world. Sometimes it's notes from the artist. Sometimes it's the artists themselves. Everybody is looking at this art at different times in different lights. So that was a huge challenge. Once I got back into the Lightroom, it was really comfortable for me to say, well, I'm in the Lightroom and this is what I'm seeing. And most people trust that because I was in the Lightroom. Other times when I was doing the work from home, this is what I see. What are you guys seeing? And we try to do a general consensus. Oh, yeah, that green does look a little bit more turquoisey than we thought. We was really looking for a 
forest green and just give examples. So that was a challenge in that piece of it. I do think in terms of digital routing, COVID was a little bit of a blessing for departments who were not as eager to go digital. This made it had to. And you realized it was okay. At my prior company, we were kind of, some of us were more digital than others. And I think that that is a positive. I don't know. Everybody doesn't agree with everybody. But in my opinion, that was one of the positives. Digital routing, I think, is here to stay. And I appreciate that. But in terms of color, because I'm, the piece of my job that I love the most is the color work. It was more challenging in COVID because of that. You know, you have to have a trusted level of your team and what they're seeing and what they're believing they're seeing. But what's amazing about that is the titles that I mentioned earlier. Some of those came from that time. So it could be done, you know. It could definitely be done from home. I just think that it helps to know or have a bit of a background. I wouldn't want to have done my first color book from home. That would have not been cool. As a production person, in the beginning of our discussion, I was talking about how proud I am to make certain books. I would not want to go to a bookstore or hear an author or an editor say, who was the production person on this book? Like, I never, when they say that, it has to be, who was the production person on this book? That's how it's Because <laughs> I take pride, you know, most of us do in book publishing. We're not here because we're trying to get rich. We're here because we love books and we want them to be the best things possible. And we understand that even though we make books every day, this particular author might be that person's first book. That's their baby. And we want to treat that book like a baby. We don't want to just say, oh, here's another one. Here's another title I got to work on. So I think it's, that's why for me, coming into the light room for the picture stuff, for the color stuff, there's a lot of the job that you're right, can be done from home. But some of it, in my opinion, is better suited if you can get it to the light room. Yeah, definitely. And I do have to say, in response to that, as you were talking about digital routing, I hope it's here to stay because I started at my company like maybe three months before the pandemic hit. So I never really learned physical routing. <laughs> so so people ask me how it used to be. And I'm like, I don't know. This is all I've ever known. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so I'm hoping it doesn't go back. <laughs> I don't think it will. I think you're good. <laughs> good. I mean, we had to print out pages, a manuscript. Okay. And, and you could edit this out. But a manuscript would transmit a manuscript. And if it was a 384-page manuscript, I had 384 pages. And a rubber band. Don't give it to me without a rubber band. When I was in Manag, oh, God. Like, you really didn't want to put a rubber band around this? What if you trip coming down it? But anyway, a rubber band. And then it would you would have to have send it, make a copy, send it to the copy. Like, every first pass would come in. How many sets do you need? <laughs> it was just paper, paper, paper routing, getting up from your desk, which was good. You got your steps in. Going to the next purse. I mean, when I say, yeah. <laughs> you had a lot of FaceTime with your colleagues. <laughs> well, that was the only plus. Yeah, I do think there is a part of me that kind of is sad that I didn't get to do it because it does seem like having the physical book does seem like there's something special about that. But also, it's so much less paper and I'm really okay with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. But you know what? It was hard for what it's funny. I, I'm used to digital now. But one of the things when you see something. So in this digital world, our inboxes is Outlook or Gmail or wherever you're using. Inboxes used to and they are when you get back into the office, something somebody puts into a physical box. So you see how much work you have to do. And listen, in your inbox, you see that right number and you're like, fudge, you know, so you still see how much. But there was a sense of accomplishment, I think taking that pile out and putting it somewhere else. 
where email just feels like email. You can be routing something in email. You can be answering an email. You can be, you could just do so much in email. Doesn't mean you're actually routing something. So just because your email number is going down, doesn't necessarily, you don't necessarily see what was in your physical inbox go down. I don't know. I'm making sense. But yeah, it was something. But you know what? I'm all for digital routing. <laughs> Having said all that. Yeah, no, I think that makes complete sense. And I completely agree. Okay, moving to the next question. And you've kind of touched a lot on this question already, just in your other answers. But how would you describe the work that your department does? My department is responsible for creating the book, the physical book. And it depends on what company you're at in terms of production. You might be responsible for making the physical book and the ebook. But what does that entail, the physical book? It's, it sounds really simple, but did I order paper? And in 2022, did I order paper six months ahead of when I needed it? Not two months, like back in the day. And back in the day, meaning last year. <laughs> Working with designers, especially when there was time crunches in 2020, to come up with their best design using the least amount of effects. Because effects take time. And if our schedule says, you know, we can make this jacket in 10 days, because that's what it was. It got that bad. But if you add an effect, it's going to be 15 days. Please don't add an effect. An effect meaning spot gloss or foil or something that it's more than just printing the book. Something that means that this, this particular cover or jacket is going to have to go through something twice. It's not just going to be printed. Something is going to go on top of that, whether it be an emboss, whether it be a foil, whether it be a spot gloss. That became creative, I think, in 2020, as our directors and production people worked together to really try to make the best product in the time that we had. Making a physical book is also looking at sample pages and sample pages route after a manuscript has transmitted. And one, you know, you usually have two copies. One is going to be copy edited. One is going to go to the designer so they can start creating sample pages. And you as a production person are part of that routing and you look at those pages and you make sure that the trim is correct because who wants to be in third pass and realize you're at the wrong trim? Nobody. So you make sure that you're at the right trim. You're making sure that your cast off, if you did a estimate for a 304 page book and your cast off is coming in at 400 pages, you are letting the appropriate people know. You're also possibly making, depending on how, what your team is, I don't want to suggest any production person to go to an editor and tell them that their book is too long. Go to your manager and they'll find out the best way to do this. But just having those kind of conversations early, learning, especially when you are on a specific imprint and know the specific editors, which editors like a light flowy book where they want their type to be very loose. As soon as you see that particular author's name, you go, oh, no, that's too tight. That page is too tight. It's not going to fly. Remembering that a hardcover is normally going to go into a trade paperback. So did a reduction sample route at the same time as your sample pages did? What am I looking at at six by nine? And what is it going to reduce to at five and five sixteenths by eight or five and a half by eight and a quarter or whatever the, your paperback trim size is? Can you still read it? You know, so having, and those are just things that happen <laughs> sometimes before it really transmits to you, right? Because it's the sample pages and you haven't even seen that manuscript yet. So the physical book is not just the paper, it's the design, it's the jacket, it's the case material. Do I have the right board for that case material? Did I order the board in enough time? Because this is a hardcover and not a paperback and we need the board. And uh, headbands. And when it comes to working with books with art, how is your art provided to you? High res, low res, uh, 
line art, proofing. And that's when the Lightroom comes into play. Like I, if you would hear me in this interview, you would think my life is the Lightroom. It's like 25% of my job, but it's to me the best part. That's when you actually get your, your color proofs in and you, and you get to look in optimal light how your book should look. And that's always fun. And for me, I like to do that before a full color review happens. On the children's side, you have this full color review like I kind of described a little bit earlier. You want to get ahead of it because nobody wants to open up a package and it's the wrong book. Nobody wants to open up a package and you realize that, oh, shoot, this was supposed to be, I ordered this, or you open up the package and you don't even like the proofs. So you do your due diligence as a production person. You look at that stuff before you have a color review with anybody. And then if you need to make any adjustments, you do those adjustments before you have color reviews. So physical, and then the ebook, right? So once the physical book is done, now you have to make sure the ebook comes out in time. And I have never physically made an ebook, but I have to make sure that the files go out to this particular vendor who is going to make that ebook and give them enough time to do so and to route in house to get it approved. That's a really great encapsulation of all the work that production does. Thank you so much. I'm sure I missed, oh my God, budgeting is a big thing too. We especially, well, Every title has a P&L, a profit and loss sheet that goes with it. And in order for an editor to provide that, they ask for an estimate so that they know what the unit cost of their book is going to be. And the unit cost, I remember when I first got in, started doing production back in the day. And I would see like a paperback would cost, I don't know, let's say, for example, if you're doing five by eight, it was 272 pages. If your paperback is like 75 cents. And I'm like, 75 cents? We're charging twelve ninety nine. What are we doing? That's just the paper and the ink. That's just the physical part. You still have to pay people's salary. <laughs> you still have to pay. You know, I wasn't thinking big picture. This book, this thing that we're producing is paying the royalties. It's paying the advances. So it can't just be what it costs to actually print. But when I started, I remember just getting like so tripped up in that. Like the publishing rips people off. Not taking into account all that that book has to pay for. You know. Okay, I think that's it. Great. Thank you so much. Okay. Next question is a two-parter. What are the favorite and least favorite parts of your job currently? I do think that my favorite part of the job is being on a good team. I find that it just brings me joy to know, be reminded how good human beings can be. That sounds really out there, but it's true. Like when you get up early in the morning and you roll up your sleeves and you want to do your best job, it's an amazing feeling to know that other people are rolling up their sleeves, getting up early and they want to do their best job. And it's not even necessarily for you, it's for this author, for this book. It's to make this book the best it could be. I really enjoy that about about my job. It sounds really corny, but the people can be amazing. The work itself, I really enjoy. Being a part of that, I always wanted to be, since I was in the design group, looking over the production group, I always wanted to be a pivotal person in terms of bookmaking. And I think production does that. What I like least about my job can be and it's for me, long hours sometimes, because I think I'm a workaholic. I think that's me. I don't think, I, in fact, I know for sure that's not everybody. But, you know, I always want to dot my I's and cross my T's and then review it again. So in the time that, and that's on me, it, the time that it could take somebody to do something, it probably takes me a little bit more because I'm slowing down. And then as a result, my days are, are long. And sometimes that can be discouraging. But it's not all the times anymore. <laughs> and ultimately, I like what I'm producing. So I tell myself that it's worth it. I think it's probably worth it. <laughs> Thank you so much for that answer. 
What would you say are the traits and or skills that you feel are necessary for a person looking for a job in production? First of all, I think you have to love books, right? Because otherwise, I think you could do this job for a little bit and then you, you want to do something else. Who wants to order paper all the time? Who wants to look at books? You know, some people are not into color. Some people are like, I would never want to work on a color book. Give me a one color book all the time, every time. Some people, you know, like color, like me. And I, I'm like, please give me color. Don't give me one color books all the time. <laughs> but I think you have to have a sense of math. And by math, you don't have to be a genius. In fact, you will start to realize, wait, how could that cost that? It'll just start to, you've been doing it so much that you know that that price point doesn't make sense. Not that you're a math genius. It's just that that pattern doesn't match. All these other trims, eight by 10 at 40 pages is a dollar a unit. How come this one is two? You're not a genius. You just figured out that you made a mistake. You made a mistake somewhere. And I, I think you need to be a team player. I think you need to be open to critique. I think you need to be extremely respectful of people's ideas. I think that's just any good human being. And I also think you need to be truthful. I tell mostly anybody who starts, especially junior production people, one of the things I like to share with them are my mistakes. Because if you know that I made mistakes and I'm not God, but I've been doing this for such a long time and I'm telling you that I've made mistakes. In fact, you think you made a mistake? Let me tell you my mistake. And I do that to make you comfortable with making mistakes. You're human. It's going to happen. Please don't lie about them. I, I feel like that's one of the biggest pet peeves for me, especially as a manager, because you are responsible for this department that you're working with and you're trusting of your people. And as soon as you lose trust in your people, your job gets 100 times harder. So just tell, just tell your man, for me, I'm telling like, oh, I ordered the wrong paper. Oh my God. Can you help me figure this out? What do you think my next step should be? Who, which paper person should I go to? But don't hold those cards to your chest and wait to the last minute. And now the paper is ordered. And you can't do anything about it because you didn't want to tell your truth. You wanted to hide it because you felt shame. I feel like the more you hide the truth, the bigger the shame will be. So just be very truthful with your mistakes. Know that you will make mistakes. But I think if you're a team player and you're respectful of people's ideas and you have good energy, nobody wants to be around a Debbie Downer all the time. Nobody wants to hear you complain all the time. Nobody wants, nobody wants to hear it. Everybody has their own issues. So they don't, I, no one cares that I was hit a seven, except maybe my daughter. Like nobody else cares. So don't bring that energy to the table and just try to be, I, for me, for me, the truth is, is the best quality. I, I can't, but yeah, I'm going to end it right there because you'll be editing a lot if I keep going. <laughs> no, I think that's such great advice. And I do, this is like a long time in the future, but I, I am thinking about doing an episode where I just have people like tell their worst mistake story. Because I think those stories are so useful, especially for people just starting, because the smallest mistake can feel like the most monumental career ending situation. And so I think it's really helpful to hear the huge mistakes that other people have made and still continue to have really wonderful careers in this industry. Oh, I think that's a great idea. I'll join that one. <laughs> yeah, I would love to have you. <laughs> because I think I think once people stop being afraid of that, once you stumble and fall and then you get back up, no one really cares. It's when you stay down that people go, oh, she didn't get back up or he didn't get back up. Oh, I wish they got back up. Once you get back up, nobody is. Most people are cheerleaders for you. Most people want you to succeed, you know. And if they don't, you're in the wrong department. You're at the wrong job. But most people want you to succeed. So, and to me, when I see somebody really doing their best, what can you ask for? It's mistakes are going to happen. 
especially in production, probably anywhere, you know. That's why we're happy we're not brain surgeons, right? <laughs> yeah, no, completely agree. And I think also to add on to that, when I'm doing a good job, I'm only helping other people who are on my team. It's such a collaborative environment that if one person fails, the entire team feels that impact. But then also if one person is really killing it, the entire team feels that as well. So for the most part, we're all, unless like obviously there are bad actors everywhere, but for the most part, we're all trying to do the best we can and also cheering each other on. At least that's been my experience. So I completely agree. And one of my colleagues said, and this was, for, you know, when I was younger, I would have this approach as giving people zero percent. I meet you, I give you zero percent. I don't know you. And then as you do something, I'm over 10%. You do something over 20%. But as I got older, I'm, I changed my approach. I'm going to give you 100%. Why not? And then if you do something, I'll love 90%. But I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt as soon as I meet you. And then usually I feel like it's better for my heart, my blood pressure to do it that way. And people, you know, some people are like, oh, well, people will disappoint you more. I'm like, well, I don't know. If you're starting off with higher expectations and you're around good people, usually you're disappointed every now and then. But I don't think it's as normal as you think it would be. Yeah, I think that's such great advice. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, this next question is kind of the big question of the episode. And you've kind of touched on quite a bit of it because you've talked so much about the different processes that go on in production. But this question is, can you walk us through the standard work that you do in your role for an individual book from start to quote unquote finish? So like you get a book, you're starting to work on it as the production manager. What does that process look like from beginning to end? Okay, so the reason I'm pausing is because it looks different in different departments, different publishing houses. Even what I'm doing today is a little bit different. So what I'm going to describe is right now I work on 90% of my books are color books, so I'm going to just give you that, which might not apply to a lot of people, which is why I pause. But, okay, so in this digital world, you will be told by your managing editor that something has transmitted. Back in the day, you would physically see a transmittal. Now, your managing editor, and at least in my world, my managing editor tells me that something has transmitted. And then depending on how complex that title is, we either work out a schedule or have already worked out a schedule. And then we start working. So what does that mean? So the managing editor has transmitted it to the production editor. The production editor has said, okay, I'm going to send this to the copy editor and I'm going to send this to me, Nemetri, the production person for the design dude. Because here at Shack, we don't have four color designers on staff. So I am also the liaison for my freelance four color design. And I'm sending that out to the designer so that they can start creating their sample pages alongside while that manuscript is being edited. And ideally what happens is we have approved sample pages, meaning the author has seen it, loved it. Sometimes we have to go through two or three rounds and the copy editing is now done. And we get something called setting copy, which means that everything is copy edited, it's presented to us with all the tags ready. It can go to the designer and the designer already has these approved sample pages. So they're going to marry this thing up and create first pass pages. First pass pages is going to be essentially your book, right? It looks like a book. It's laid out. You route a PDF. It's normally created in InDesign or whatever program that the house was working with. Eventually you'll see a PDF and then that PDF is called first pass. For me, there's usually art involved. At this time, I'm going to use just the low-res art because high-res files creates a bigger file. And like we said, routing digitally, and the bigger the file, the longer it takes to download, the longer it takes to review. Nobody wants to craft your computer every time they open up a PDF. So you kind of go into the low-res art files that you're working with. You create first pass. 
first pass then goes to production editors going to send it off to them. And then I wait to get it back from the production editor who now has marked this up, marked those pages up, meaning that, I don't know, let's say this is a 320 page book and you've gone through your pages and you see that almost every page has a mark and a mark meaning that a comma was missed here, a typo was wrong on this page. This page, the author wants to reword it different. So you're looking through this and you're giving it, what we do is we give it to our comp house first, which is very different. So edit as you read. We give it to a comp house who makes the text corrections. A lot of publishing houses has a desktop group and they make the text corrections in-house. Some don't. We don't. We don't for four colors. So I'm sending it to a comp house to make those text corrections. Then I'm giving it back to the designer. Just in case the author has looked at first pass and said, you know what? I don't really want that picture of the cake on page 20. I want this picture of the cake on page 20. I don't want this house to look like this. Can you plate swap it in with this image? So art swaps can happen between first pass and second pass. So first pass comes back in, it's marked up, text corrections, art corrections, comes back to me as the production person. I'm just kind of looking through to see like, are we going to make this schedule? Because let's say it's a crash schedule and you gave me so many corrections. I'm just like, yeah, we ain't going to make it. Or let's have the energy and pretend that we're going to make it <laughs> until we don't, right? So then we go to second pass and second pass means all of these text corrections have been made. All of the art corrections have been swapped in. Now it's ready for me to start proofing. Second pass pages comes in because you really don't want to make art changes after second pass. That's the author's, for me, in my, this world that we're describing right now, that's the author's last chance to make. First pass was their chance to do their swap. Second chance, no more. Except if you legally can't use it. And then I start proofing. Okay, so what does that mean? It means that now I'm looking at the high-res files. I've routed low-res, but I've always had high-res because that's what the book needs to print with. And now I'm giving those high-res files to the color separator because I know the size that is going to be on that page. And I know how many images we're going to use from the art that was provided. And then I'm outputting something called an Epson or a digital proof or a wet proof. And you're looking at that for color. If it's a trade cookbook, I'm probably looking at that for color along with a designer. But remember, I don't have a designer, so it's just me. And then I'm using, excuse me, I don't have an in-house designer. And the freelance designer doesn't come in to look at proofs. And I'll usually ask my editor, whoever that editor is, to come in and look at it with me. That's the adult side. The children's side, they do something called a color review. And they also work with Final File. So let's continue with the trade. So started the second pass, started moving things along. Looking at the art for a cookbook, I am usually look at an image. If I can't figure out, if I think something looks too green, and I'm like, should it be green? I'll go back and look at the ingredients. Oh, pesto. That's probably why it's given that green. So you're, kind, you're being involved in the book. You're not just looking at it and go, I don't like it. You're really trying to immerse yourself into this process if it's a cookbook, if it's a lifestyle book. I've learned again and again, don't beautify people too much because maybe they love who they are as they are. So don't that blemish that you just really wanted to clean up, they might want it there. <laughs> so those questions, I've learned to ask the editor. There was this one image where the author presented a picture of her husband with one of his teeth were knocked out. Now, I knew that she knew when she gave us the image that he didn't have a tooth there. I mean, you could see it. But still, it's my job to be like, hey, sure you want to use this picture? Cool if you do. But her husband took pride in the talkie accident that he had and he doesn't have this tooth and he loves that look. And if I would have tried to correct that or beautify that, you know, he would have been pissed off. So you don't assume is what I've learned. So that's for people. 
than this imagery where you're kind of just making that image look as pretty as possible. Then I've worked with photographers that don't want their image to look as pretty as possible. They want you to present what was in that photo, whether it's blemished or not. That's what they presented. That's what they want. So it's different styles and it's different approaches when it comes to color in the trade world and in the children's world. Because in the children's world, you can work with all different types of art, collages, pastels, watercolor, and colors that an artist can create on a canvas that we can never create in full color process. What do I mean by that? The print world, as technology is what it is, we can still only print in four colors, right? CMYK, cyan, magenta, yellow, and black. And you can have this beautiful turquoise type of water in the paintings. And it's my job to convey to that artist, we're not going to get that in four color. But what do you mean we're not going to get it? I see it on my screen. Screens are RGB and the plethora of colors in the RGB gamut. It's not the plethora of colors in the CMYK world. And we're on a printing press and we just can't. We can make beautiful books, but we can't make it. We can't capture certain colors. And we have to be truthful with that. Usually a good editor will explain that when they see the art to their illustrator. And if they haven't done so, then it becomes my job to give them the bad news. We'll make it look as beautiful as possible, but we probably won't hit this. What else is important to you in this image? Because we'll try to hit that. So it's, it becomes a conversation. It's not, yes, it's a project that you do from beginning to end. But in that project, there are many conversations. And in those conversations, not only do you get to know these people, but you get to understand what they want. And the more conversations you have, as long as they're useful, not just wordy, the better the projects will be. And the better you will, you will really learn to appreciate your books too, if you haven't already. You know, sometimes you ask me a question and I feel like, did I answer it or did I go somewhere else? <laughs> You definitely did. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you for that. Um, that's one of my favorite questions because I do think it's really important for people to know the full scope because, you know, people coming into this industry think, oh, I'm going to make books, which is accurate, but they don't really understand the full scope of everything that goes into each individual title. And all of that work you just described was one book that you're working on. You might be working on, I don't know, 15, 20, however many books per season per year. That's so much extra work that you wouldn't necessarily think about coming into this industry. And so I think it's just so important that people realize the full breadth of all of the work that we're doing all the time. Yeah. And you know what else is also interesting? It is very, you have to be so sensitive in how you convey what you can and cannot do, right? Because if I'm working with you and you say, well, Nemecha, I can't get to this because I'm working on so-and-so and so. What? I don't want to hear about the other book you're working on. So we'll be working on my book, right? So it's more like a balance of, you know what, I'm going to get to this as soon as I finish this book, only because I was in my queue right before your book. You know, you're saying the same thing, but you're feeling like you're giving the attention to everybody. It's like being responsible for like a, a camp counselor where all the kids are raising their hand and you can't just pick one because you don't want to have a favorite. So, so you have to be very diplomatic. And at least I've learned that because I've learned not to just say, you know, oh, I'm working on so-and-so's book like that other person cares. They don't care. They, what are you doing for my book? You <laughs> Yeah, I think that's definitely something you learn the longer you're in this industry. I've just started learning that, and it's been really useful. Okay, next question. What is one thing that you wish you knew about publishing or your role before you started working in the industry? I wish I knew about it. You know, when I was one of those kids. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. And then I thought, you know, oh, I want to do radio production. If I would have known this gig existed, <laughs> I probably would have wanted to do this my entire life. 
So that's an interesting question for a production person. Like this industry is big and, you know, you have your marketing team, which people know about because marketing exists everywhere, not just in publishing. And then you have your editor who was the front line to the house. I never wanted to be an editor because they're the front line. Think about it. If you're at war, who gets hit first? The front line. So you're, I feel like I'm in a square, right? I feel like editorial is in the front line, in the front. I'm on the side in the front line. So I get hit, but nowhere near as much as editorial, in my opinion. So I kind of knew that I didn't want to be in editorial. And I knew marketing wasn't my thing or publicity wasn't my thing. But I had no idea about I thought I wanted to be a designer. I did. And I enjoyed it for a while. But I didn't know about production. And I'm here on your show to let more people know about production. <laughs> because I think it's such an interesting thing, such a well-kept secret. And... The more people who know about it, the more talent we could get into this group of people, I mean, the better our books would be. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the thesis behind this whole podcast. So I'm glad you feel the same. And yeah, I was one of those, I talk about this often on this podcast, but I was one of those weirdos that like in sixth grade decided I wanted to work in publishing. But I I thought I wanted to be an editor because that was the only job that I thought existed. Exactly. And then I found out what a managing editor does. And I was like, oh my God, it's like someone designed a job for me to do. This is perfect. So I think it's just so important that people know all of the different opportunities that this industry can offer to you as a career, because you might not want to be an editor, but you might still love working with books in a different department that does different things with those books. So it's just so important that you know the full scope of all of the different work that can be done in this industry. So this is interesting that you've been, you said you've only been doing this for a couple of years, but this is a podcast that you're doing. That's pretty cool. Thank you. Yeah, no, I came up with the idea. I went to a publishing institute after graduating from college and I had a great time, but it was so expensive. And I was like, it can't, which one did you go to? I went to DPI, the Denver Publishing Institute. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it was great. And like, I had a wonderful time and I met some really wonderful people. Like I have two friends that are some of my closest friends in the world. And I met them at a publishing institute of all places. Okay. But even while I was there, I was like, this is way too expensive. This is not good for most people. And it shouldn't require me to go halfway across the country to like, oh, you physically went there. So I've had a colleague who did that online and the company paid for it because, you know, once you're depending on, and I think this is important for your listeners to know too, if you are lucky enough to get the job, and hopefully you are if you're listening to this podcast, utilize what's at that house you're at. A lot of times HR has programs where you can get, you can go to these different schools or have this different certificates or, you know, learn these things. The caveat is you got to usually stay a year after, also they make you pay the money back, learn all that kind of stuff before you take it. But sometimes they will pay for it. So that's cool to know. Yeah, that's a really good perk that some jobs do. Yeah, no, I paid for it out of pocket. So it was the financial hit was all my own. And so while I was there, I was like, this this shouldn't be behind a paywall. This information should be much more readily available. And like you can Google certain things, but you have to dive deep into all of this. It's so murky and it's confusing. And so I just wanted, even while I was there, I was like, there should be a podcast about this. And then I was like, there isn't one. Maybe I'll just make it. And so here I am. (laughs) Good for you. God, that's great. I would be so proud of myself. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, we're at the beginning stages. We'll see how it goes, but I am proud of it. But you're doing it. You're doing it. Thank you. It's not just an idea in your head. You're doing it. You're reaching out to people you don't know. You're asking amazing questions and you're doing it for such a greater good. That's so good. I I wish you nothing but success with this. This is great. Thank you so much. Okay. I have more questions though. Okay. Okay, So two more real questions and then I have a couple ending questions for you. 
The next one is, if given the power, what would you change about publishing as an industry? So like some higher up person with all the power in the industry came to you and said, hey, you have this power for one day. You can make any change in the industry that will last forever. What changes would you make? So what first popped into my head, I'm almost sure I shouldn't say, but I'm saying anyway. When I first started in publishing a lot, and to this day, actually, a lot of white males have power. So publishing is a lot of women. But if you look until very recently, the white male had power, right? So they had to say, they had the, what books you could buy, they greenlit certain things, they read like, you know. And I bring that up because some folks see it as an arrogance, and it is, right? To think that you know what other people want to read, and you know it in your heart so well that you have people buy into it, and you have this arrogance about you that says, no, so-and-so is going to read this, so-and-so is going to read that. I wish that arrogance for everybody. <laughs> I wish that arrogance for the Black woman who's like, no, so-and-so is going to read this. So-and-so is going to read that. The Asian guy who has that pop. Nope, so-and-so. I want that for people because I feel like when people believe in themselves so much that they get other people to believe in them, that's power, right? And half the times it worked. Sometimes it didn't. But can you imagine if we all had that power? How amazing would that be? Like you stepped into the room and just said what you believed. And people bought into it because they believed you. And they had a sense of this person knows what they're talking about. Because me as a Black woman, sometimes you come into the room and you sit in the back. You don't really want to say anything. You don't want to be ridiculed or you don't. No, I wish everybody just had that arrogance. <laughs> and I know there's a better word that I should use, but that is what it is. Have that belief. And then other people believe it too. Not just look at you because you look different or you sound different. I think that's when publishing would explode. I, I feel like. You know, there's been a lot that's happened since 2020. And so George Floyd happened, but so much has happened, you know, and continues to happen. So hopefully, you know, a door, did a door open or was it cracked? Did somebody just crack a door and just say, hey, guys, do you want to come in? I just, somebody kick open the door and be arrogant with it. And not just the white guy, but, you know, all different cultures come into the room and say what you want and do it in a way where people believe you so that we can buy more diverse books and have more different viewpoints. And, and just, I feel like the more we read about each other, because, okay, we're bl I'm blessed. We're, I think you're in New York too. We live in New York. We live in this diverse community. We're exposed to a lot of people. I'm, okay, I'm from Harlem. My daughter is Black, <laughs> like me. And when she went in Harlem, she's good. She walks with her head high. She's fine. But when she went to high school in Midtown, this was one of her first times leaving her community. And I saw her. She walked smaller, you know. By the time she graduated, she was walking, you know, because she's been exposed to different cultures, right? So I feel like publishing, we have this power that we can expose people to different cultures. And I think other people will walk taller because they've been exposed. I don't know. I just wish that that could, as, as I know I'm saying it really simply, but when you're exposed to different cultures, when you believe in someone who looks different from you, but still look at them as a human being and believes what they're saying and buys into what they're saying, makes you a better person. It opens you up more. And everybody can't live in New York. So books, right? Books can do that. Books can travel and, and expose people to bigger and better things. Not so limiting. That's what I would change. I would, it's not just a, a movement for a day or two, but just a whole different mindset of, I'm an arrogant white guy. <laughs> <laughs> and I rule the world.
That's my answer. You can edit it as you need. <laughs> I won't need to edit it at all. That's an amazing answer. Thank you. <laughs> I love that answer. Thank you for that. That's, again, phenomenal. Last real question that I prepared. What is the best advice that you've received thus far in your career that you would want to pass on to someone else? Or maybe you would tell yourself earlier in your career than you actually received the advice. I think that there is something to be said by being your authentic self. And when I say that, I, I mean, if you're a mouthy person, you don't got to bring all that mouth. But what I mean is being yourself and not being scared to be yourself. I feel like that's just a healthier way to live. So for me, I guess it would be, okay, so my parents blessed me with this name, right? I'm born in Brooklyn. I've never been to Africa in my life. I have this African name and I don't even look like my name, right? I would always joke when people meet me, they're like, it's you? That's who you? We thought it was going to be some, I don't know. Some people thought Japanese. Some people thought Hawaiian. Some people thought African. Most people think African. But I'm, I'm a Black girl from Harlem. And my parents were born in the 70s. Well, no, I was born in the 70s. But they gave me this name, this Afrocentric name, right? And what it has taught me, and I wish I would have, I'm older now so I could do it. But a name like mine makes me have to speak up for myself or not. And I learned that if you don't speak up for yourself, people will mispronounce your name their whole lives. And it's your fault because you never corrected them. Right. So I have this unique opportunity to always speak up for myself. And a lot of times when I was younger, I didn't want to. I was like, they could just call me that. And I could just hear my mother like, are you going to really let them mess up your name? Really? So a push to speak up for yourself, always respectfully. I must underline that or underscore that. Always respectfully. Always be diplomatic, but speak up for yourself. My name has taught me to do that. I have to say, no, it's Nemeche. <laughs> no, Wally Yaya, that's how you say it. I've had to speak up for myself just so you could say my name correctly, right? But in doing so, also, if I can do that step, then I should be able to speak up for myself when somebody does something that I didn't necessarily like. And I have an opportunity to say something respectfully, diplomatically. Speaking up for yourself, I'm telling you, it will reduce your blood pressure <laughs> so much because there's no woulda, coulda's. Oh, I wish I would have said that. I could have said that. You said it. You said it respectfully, diplomatically, but you said it. Whew, I'm telling you, that is the best advice. I, I have to underscore it by being diplomatic and respectful. Don't just come out your mouth, but say it. If it's on your heart and it's applicable to what the situation is, say it. Just say it. Maybe you can't say it in that conference room. Maybe you have to pull the person aside and say, hey, can I talk to you about something? But if you just say it, I'm, I promise you a better life. <laughs> With diplomacy and respect, then I can promise you. <laughs> yeah, that's such great advice. And I've heard that from other people, too, that it's so easy in this industry to just get spoken over and to be ignored and talked over. And so it's so important to have the courage to speak out for yourself because no one else is going to do it for you. <laughs> no one else. And you can do it in a way where maybe you make people laugh. Maybe just say it, though. I, I find the most regret is when I didn't say something. That's such great advice. Thank you. Um, okay, those are all of the official questions I had. So we are almost done. I'm sorry for taking so much of your time. <laughs> it's my fault. I don't know how to just say yes or no. I have to give you long <laughs> answers around the world, which is probably why somebody gave you my name in the first place. <laughs> I love the long answers, so it's perfect. <laughs> but yes, so the last question I want to ask before we finish is, it's a two-parter. Number one, 
if you want to be followed on the internet, where can we follow you? And then number two, do you have any like upcoming titles or projects that you're really excited about that you want to shout out to my listeners? Okay. So interestingly enough, I will email you that because my name is my name. <laughs> long and you're going to be like, okay. So I'll email you where you can get in contact with me. Books that I'm working on, I always get a little, I pause a little bit because I'm not sure what people are supposed to know, what people are not supposed to know. That's that managing editor in me, right? Where you're like, oh, I know that's coming up, but I can't tell you about it yet. <laughs> so the things that I am really proud of that are coming out very recently or are out now accidentally Wes Anderson such a cool book and that's definitely out it's probably reprinted so cool one of the first trade books that I did where I took some children's color secrets and applied them can't tell y'all everything because then y'all know my secrets and then everybody will be doing it and then why will I be special (laughs) but um so that was cool I I really Music is a rainbow. It's going to be my heart. It's probably going to be the one of the title. I don't think it's out yet. It's probably out this summer. That's going to be a favorite for me for a long, long time. One of the first Pioneer Woman books that came out was <laughs> so funny, real quick. So this was, when you think of a color book, you say, how many images are in the book? Because you're thinking about proofing. And you say, okay, it's 352 pages, but it's going to be like 150 images. Pioneer Woman came out. She was like, it's going to be like 2,000 images. I was like, what? It's like this step-by-step thing. And we're going to just have an image for every step. Blew my mind. And look what that turned out to be, right? And I'm not going to say I was excited about that. I was not. So I'm not going to lie. If you're like, I was so excited to work about that. No, it wasn't. I was like, 2,000 images. Who got time for that? But look at look at it now. And what what other... As soon as I finish this, I'm going to think of all these titles that I, I could have talked to you about. The Rise, uh, Marcus Samuelson. I think I mentioned that one already. I think that's what I'm going to end it with for now. Yeah, if you think of any more, feel free to email them to me. I can just like pop them in at the end. Um, But yes, those are all my questions. Okay. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. I know it was such a huge leap of faith on your end because you have no idea who I am, nor should you. But thank you so much. I have had such a wonderful time talking to you. Well, and me like, too. I'm going to tell oh, Ray and say, you. Ray, you were, you were right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. And I think your answers have been so informational. And like, I didn't have to prompt you to explain anything. You were like, well, when I say this, I mean that. And it was so nice because oftentimes I'm like, what does that mean? You know what I mean? So it was just, it flowed so perfectly. And uh, I'm just a huge fan of yours now. So thank you so much for doing this podcast. Thank you. (laughs) It was a pleasure talking to you. And I just love what you're doing. And keep it up. Congratulations. You know? Thank you so much. Really cool. (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Nice talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Slush. Please visit slushpod.com where you'll find episode transcripts, free resources, and forms to submit questions and feedback. You can also follow Slush on Twitter at slushpod. And if you are so inclined, please rate and review the podcast. Slush is hosted and produced by Eric Harden. Slush's logo was designed by Shelby Pack, and its theme music comes from the song Good Luck Charm by Olive Music. Any views expressed on the podcast are personal and do not reflect the opinions or interests of the hosts or guests' employers. Thank you again for listening. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.